I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there and you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to The Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Matt Bernicob, just one of the workers in the vineyard. And I'm Dean Detloff, your most dishonest manager. In this episode, we're talking with Hollis Phelps, the author of the new book, Jesus and the Politics of Mammon. It's a really neat book uh, that gets into, uh, you know, considering Jesus as like a social thinker and uh, what some of his more subversive lines mean for political resistance and uh, other types of things like that. Uh, it's a really cool book. It's out on Cascade Books and it's pretty cheap. So you should go pick it up if you got the chance. Uh, Dean, what did you really like about the book? Yeah, it's really fun. Um, I think I liked most that Hollis does a really interesting job positioning Jesus in conversation with uh, continental philosophy, which is a thing that I study a lot. So there's a, a bunch of Marxists who are really interested in Christianity, like Alain Bajou, who's a French Marxist, or Slava Zizek, a Slovenian Marxist. Um, but they're mostly interested in Paul, and Hollis is like, how come we're not talking about Jesus? Um, we get to talk a little bit about that in the interview. I really liked that stuff in the book. So there's that side of the conversation, and the other is he positions Jesus against uh, liberal Christianity as well, um, trying to sort of figure out, you know, well, what what might Jesus have to say that would actually interrogate some of these other uh, ways of thinking about what it means to be a, a Christian in the world. So I really valued the conversation partners he has and the sort of complicated subversive Jesus that comes through. Um, it really gets you in touch with, you know, the the Lord and Savior that you once invited into your heart. Uh, it's a good way to get into your faith. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I really like the way that, um, I, I mean, sometimes Jesus gets overshadowed as, you know, being literally God. Um, and some of like the social ethic of Jesus gets pushed to the wayside or, um, you know, or it gets, uh, really sentimentalized sometimes and pacifism and other types of things. But in Hollis's book, he goes to some pretty great lengths to read difficult parables and different difficult stories from Jesus and kind of like helps us make sense of them. So, um, I, I got a real good and maybe deeper sense of what Jesus is going after in the gospels. And I think that's cool. Yeah, it is. Uh, well, the interview is great because we get to figure out a lot more about Jesus. We also get some uh, comment from Hollis Phelps about the religious left, uh, that thing that we keep talking about every once in a while on this podcast. And uh, I hope that it'll be a good chance for people to get in touch with Jesus, uh, but also a good chance for you to go out and spend that Christmas money that you got from your aunt this year that's uh, burning a hole in your pocket. This is a book that you definitely should buy. Magnificast endorsement, 10 out of 10, five stars out of five. Uh, 
just 12 apostles out of 12 <laughs> 12 apostles out of 12 three persons out of one trinity <laughs> go get this book This week on the show, we have Hollis Phelps, the Assistant Professor of Interdisciplinary Studies at Mercer University, and also the author of the very good book, Jesus and the Politics of Mammon. Um, Hollis, thanks for coming on the show. We appreciate it. Oh, um, yeah. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate the invitation. Yeah. Well, uh, whenever we have an author on the show, uh, we always ask them for an elevator pitch for their book. So do you want to give us an elevator pitch for Jesus and the Politics of Mammon? Yeah, hopefully it's an okay one. I'm not great at elevator pitches. But I wanted in this book to write about a different Jesus, or at least the Jesus that I was reading in the Gospels and that I wasn't reading about anywhere else. Um, I was, of course, frustrated with the, you know, to use political language, conservative Jesus, but also the liberal Jesus that I often saw represented in the media and also in various churches. Um, I wanted a much more um, radical Jesus, I guess, if you could say that, um, and one that also uh, fit with what I was reading in critical theory and continental philosophy, which also ignores Jesus pretty much. So this book is my attempt to grapple with all of that, and I present a Jesus that is a political Jesus, a non-religious Jesus that focuses on money, work, and family, or rather focuses against money, work, and family. That, that's a great elevator pitch. Uh, I don't know what you're talking about, saying you're bad at them. Um, that, that gets uh, everything on the table. I think we're going to circle back to pretty much uh, all those themes that you just pulled out. Uh, maybe one place to start would be to talk a little bit about uh, the decisions you make about focusing on Jesus in particular. So there's a trend in contemporary philosophy that you talk about in your book, and also in certain leftist circles to talk about somebody like Paul as a political radical with people like Bajou and Zizek and others. Um, so you, you acknowledge that and say, but what about Jesus? And how could we think of a radical Jesus? So could you maybe explain a little bit how both of those figures get worked out on the left? Um, maybe some people are familiar with the Paul thing and maybe not. And then why turn to Jesus and not just stick with that radical Paul that's already out there? Yeah, um, I guess a good place to start with taking that question is uh, I wrote my dissertation on Badu. Um, and my first book was on Badu, which is a revised version of the dissertation. And the way I got into Badu was through the Paul book that he wrote, St. Paul, the Foundation of Universalism. And what Badu tries to do there is read Paul as a contemporary. He reads Paul outside the framework of Christian theological assumptions um, and takes Paul as this sort of political revolutionary that creates a third discourse, the Christian discourse between Jewish discourse and Greek discourse. And I mean, whatever you make of that distinction, um, Badu sees a third trajectory emerging out of that, which provides for a contemporary politics that isn't so much concerned with questions of identity and questions of capital. And I mean, Badu is in dialogue with a lot of other figures on the left um, in writing 
on Paul, Giorgio Gombin, Slavoj Žižek, and there are others as well. And all of them attempt to recover Paul as this sort of founder of something, you know, whether it's the founder of universalism or the founder of a particular type of messianic thought, as you see with Agamben. What you also see in these works is a dismissal of Jesus. And for some of them, it's quite explicit. I mean, Badu thinks Jesus is sort of naive and that Paul is smart to, be, to ignore him. And so um, Badu ignores him as well. And so I wanted to try to do something similar to what they were doing with Paul, though I by no means consider myself in their league, um, but to do it with Jesus and to say, you know, let's actually take Jesus seriously instead of just dismissing him. And perhaps um, maybe because we haven't taken Jesus seriously and because of, and, and we've taken Paul seriously over against Jesus, maybe we're missing some things that we could gain from looking at Jesus. And so I still read Jesus through critical theory and contemporary philosophy, but as I read him, he becomes um, completely relevant for contemporary discussions, especially um, anti-capitalist discussions. Cool. It's such a neat project to to do that. Um, I think that's a really interesting thing. Well, at the beginning of the book, um, when you're explaining all this stuff about Paul, you start explaining um, that, you know, Jesus isn't a political revolutionary like Lenin. Uh, that's like a hard uh, thing to stick on to Jesus. But at the same time, he's not like a liberal reformer either. And instead, Jesus focuses on subverting the, you know, like social fabric of his time and disrupting politics from the inside. Um, there's a word that you use to describe that, uh, social ontology, that Jesus is somebody that uh, focuses on the social ontology of situations. So um, to kind of parse out what kind of revolutionary Jesus actually is or what kind of political figure Jesus actually is, could you tell us a little bit about social ontology? Yeah, so, so, social ontology, as I understand it, is the various ways that life gets organized into particular spheres or institutions that govern how we live. And so the ones that I treat in this book are money, work, and family. And I take those as the primary social ways that human beings are organized, at least currently under late capitalism, but also in a lot of ways I would suggest um, throughout history, although that takes uh, different forms, which is why I can read this from Jesus as well. And so when I'm reading Jesus, you know, as, as you point out, there's a tendency to, when understanding Jesus politically, to read him in a sort of either or way. You know, either Jesus provoked this forward facing challenge to the state, or he wasn't that political in the first place you know that's the sort of either or but i think we're focusing on the wrong place there he's he's definitely politically active and what he does is political but it's not directed at the state head-on it's directed at these institutions that the state uses to control populations and so if we can provide different ways to conceptualize these institutions 
perhaps we can have sort of an imminent change from those institutions themselves. Now, that doesn't mean, of course, that we ignore um, the state and its organization entirely, but I think we have to be honest that that's a really hard way to go, and we see that with Jesus as well. He gets crucified for it. So, <laughs> yeah, uh, there's some political fallout uh, that comes from that for sure. Um, yeah, that's a really helpful uh, way in here. A- another term, also maybe just to get one more sort of vocabulary piece on the table here, is uh, mammon, which of course is also in the the book's title. Um, sometimes mammon, when Christians talk about it popularly, is interchangeable with something like money or wealth. But you develop it into something a bit more structural or it contains maybe a little bit more in that term. So could you say, too, a little bit about what you mean by mammon and uh, how Jesus confronts that or or sort of figures out the politics of mammon? Yeah, it fits with what I was just saying. Uh, Mammon is usually, as you say, translated as wealth or sometimes money. And that sets the basic opposition to which a lot of Jesus's teachings and parables are concerned with, I think that's a limiting understanding of what mammon really means or how it functions within Jesus's thought, however. Yes, at a sort of literal level, it means wealth or money, but wealth and money are attached to many other things. And as I discuss in my book, two of the main ways that the system of wealth or the system of money or a money economy, whatever you want to call it, maintains itself is through work and the family. Work provides our access to money and family provides the means through which we work to gain access to that money. So by criticizing mammon, Jesus is also criticizing the various institutions that support and give access to wealth. And what that allows me to do by broadening that concept is to see the connections between what Jesus says, Jesus says about wealth and what he says about um, work and what he says about family. And if you look at these structurally, they sort of match up and he makes a lot of similar moves with respect to all three of them. So I want to read mammon as a broader category, especially when you take that in opposition to God, because classically in the Christian theological tradition, God is not just a personal being, but an organizing principle. God names a particular way to shape lives in reference to God's self. So to have an adequate opposition to that, mammon needs to be a total thing as well. Mammon needs to be something that also organizes life for itself. And it has to be much broader than just money to do that. There are other things that play into that concept. And so that's why I want to broaden the category and use it in that way. Yeah, that's really interesting. well, you you mentioned um, just like you I mean in the book you mentioned, but you just did as well that Jesus Jesus is against Mammon kind of on three fronts at the level of money, work, and family. Um, 
but like ironically, those are probably the three big values of typical Christians in the United States. Um, yeah. Among you know even conservatives and liberals, it doesn't matter. Money, work, and family are probably things that you know uh, a lot of Christians get behind, or you know specific orientations to them are. Uh, so, do you think that Jesus can subvert those values that are deeply encoded into the lives of people uh, who say they follow Jesus Himself? I would like to think so, but. It hasn't been very successful so far in a lot of ways. As you mentioned, uh, you know, American Christianity revolves around those three things. The church that I used to attend in Raleigh, North Carolina, it was a big Episcopal church. And, you know, I'll be honest, the only reason I attended was because they had a good children's program and I wanted something for my kids to do for a little while. And that's the reason they were attracting a lot of members is because they had an emphasis on family. And this was coming from a a fairly liberal congregation. So, again, it's like you say, conservatives and liberals. And also work is very important to Christian identity in the United States. And so is wealth. Even if we speak against these things sometimes, they shape really what it means to be a Christian in the United States. What does it mean? Well, the ideal is, you know, to be a good family person, to be, to do well at one's job, right? And to have enough resources to live a relatively comfortable life. Jesus speaks against all three of those things, not in a naive way, as I discuss in the book, but as in terms of how we should consider their importance. And really by using those threes, I'm intentionally using them because I think they're there in Jesus, but also to argue against contemporary Christianity in the United States and elsewhere as well. Um, Jesus envisions something differently that cuts against these ways of organizing our lives, not because these things are bad in and of themselves, but because they are used to organize our lives in ways that make us insular and make us close ourselves off from other people. In other words, work, money, and family become means to compete with each other. And anything that clashes with our insular understanding of those um, has to be dismissed. So it's really a way to deny any sort of solidarity by emphasizing the importance of these three institutions as the end-all, be-all of what our lives are about. Yeah, I mean, there's so much good material in your book, working out uh, all three of these things in great detail. So uh, I won't spoil it too much by asking you to say (laughs) more about it now. I think people should definitely read it. Um, But could you maybe give us an example of how Jesus uh, subverts maybe one of these things? uh, And a place to start might be an interesting read that you give on a parable that I think a lot of people have a hard time reading, uh, the parable of the dishonest manager. So here's a place where Jesus is sort of intervening uh, in mammon in a particular way. So can you explain a little bit how that parable works on your understanding and how it works out in that disjunction you were just saying between God and mammon as organizing principles? Yeah, that's a really difficult parable, and it's actually the other structuring moment of my book is trying to come to terms with the relationship between the opposition between God and mammon in this parable of the dishonest manager. And just to summarize it quickly, 
you know, there's this manager who's been squandering the wealth of the landholder, and you know, he gets called to account by his employer and says, I need an accounting of my finances or you're gonna lose your job. And the manager gets nervous because he hasn't been doing a great job. He's been squandering um, his employer's wealth. Uh, and so what he does is he finds the people that owe debts to his employer, the landowner, and um, offers cut rate bargains on those debts. In other words, you know, hey, you owe uh, my employer 100, we'll pay 50 and we're all settled up, that's fine. And the manager doesn't do this out of any sort of benevolence to the other people. He's very clear that he does it for his own benefit because he's afraid of what's going to happen to, them, to him. He doesn't have any skills other than managing. So if he gets thrown out, he basically has no means to make a living. Well, he forgives all these debts and then the manager comes to him, sees that these debts are forgiven and collected upon and says, you know, well, great job. <laughs> um, you know, well done. Maybe you haven't been squandering my wealth. Um, and then at the end of the parable, you know, it's make friends for yourself by means of dishonest wealth, which is a really difficult phrase. Um, but especially when he goes on to say you can't serve God and mammon, because that seems to mean the opposite. You are serving God and mammon simultaneously via dishonest wealth. Uh, just in summary, the basic way I read that is it's a way to use mammon against mammon or wealth against wealth. In other words, the dishonest manager intervenes as best he can in the situation, and he simultaneously offers some debt forgiveness to people, but also undercuts part of the manager's power in the process over these people, because now the people no longer owe the debts, but also they were able to get out of their debts for less than they what, what they would have had to pay in the first place. What matters here, however, is the position of the manager, and I think that when we read parables, we often don't take seriously who is in what social position. Just because the guy is a manager doesn't mean that he's in a high social position. He's basically probably one step up or one or two steps up from the people he's forgiving debts to. And so he's just as much of mercy as you know, his um, to his employer as the other people, even if he's a little better off. And so when you see these parables where you have people sort of playing the system, I mean, there are other parables where people play the system as well. Uh, the parable of the talents and um, things along that line. When people are playing the system, they're always at the other end of the social ladder. These aren't people who control mammon. These are people who are subject to mammon. They're the debtors rather than the creditors. Um, and so what Jesus is offering, I think, in these parables is something for the debtors, something for people on the lower end of mammon to work against mammon, to work within mammon, to undermine mammon, from within, if that makes any sense. And so that what, that's what it means, at least on my reading, to be shrewd with wealth or make friends via dishonest wealth. It's to say, hey, here's this unjust system. 
we can't always completely subtract from the system or fight against it, but how can we undermine it from within for our advantage? Yeah, I actually find that really compelling um, and interesting. I, I feel like, I mean, some parables are really hard to even kind of get a grasp on, especially when, you know, you have the tradition of uh, evangelical Christians reading just the most bizarre things into them. Um, I always feel like, you know, I'm one of the disciples. Jesus is giving a, a parable and I have no idea what the hell it's about. Right. Um, but uh, along those lines, uh, when I was reading your uh, your section uh, about dishonest wealth, I was thinking, too, of the uh, the workers in the field, the parable where, you know, these um, these workers keep showing up to the vineyard. And uh, no matter what time they started working, they end up getting paid all the same, like all the same amount. And it seems like actually really similar to that, right? There's a, there's a manager who's paying some workers just like indiscriminately, they all get the same amount of money. And it's still, it's like, um, it's uh, undermining mammon from within the system without just like, you know, ignoring it completely or something. Right. Yeah. I think that's, um, I mean, it's another example of showing that, well, I think there are two things going on there, right? First, you know, the guy's exploiting labor <laughs> um, be, because uh, he's paying others different amounts. But also, right, it sort of levels things, at least at a conceptual level, that work is not necessarily tied to money. And that's what we tend to do, right, is um, you work, you get money, and that's the way it goes. But what you see in, you know, the parable of the laborer in the vineyards is that because productivity is not directly tied to money because everyone's getting paid, you know, the same for different amounts of time, that means that there's no necessary relationship between work and money, that that's a construction used by landowners or employers or capitalists or the bourgeoisie, whatever term you want to call it, um, the owners of the means of production to exercise control over people. Yeah, I wonder if you could say a little bit more about the maybe uh, proximity and distance between the political economy that's operative when Jesus is uh, telling all these parables and moving around and uh, the political economy we find ourselves in today. Uh, I think that's one of the most valuable things about your book is that, you know, you you have, for example, a long excursus about debt and debt and credit economies and how they function under capitalism, and then how uh, debt is also a really complicated sort of thing in uh, the biblical stories as well. Um, so, yeah, could you say maybe a little bit more about how, uh, as you said earlier, <laughs> there's a certain sense in which that parable we were just talking about is kind of uh, an exploitative one, right? The, the workers are not being compensated according to their labor time. Um, but it's also trying to undo that in some kind of way. I mean, you can, if you spend any time in like evangelical circles, people will sometimes even go to those parables as a way of saying, well, the the boss gets to decide whatever they do with their money. And that's because they've earned it, right? So there's all kinds of bizarre ways of like, sorting this out. So yeah, maybe if you could just say a little bit more about um, how do we maybe understand uh, or build some bridges between what Jesus is doing in this other political economy and what's happening under capitalism now? Yeah, that's a good question. And I think we always need to be mindful of differences in historical situations, which makes it often hard to you know, provide bridges between the past and the present. But also I get frustrated with um, 
over historicization a lot of times. And this is where I've been really influenced by Badu and how he reads um, the relationship between moments and history. Yes, there are differences in the way debt functions and the way debt is produced and the way debt is used to control populations in Jesus's time and currently in the United States and the rest of the world. What's the same, though, is that debt is the primary mechanism of control there. I mean, so, yeah, it functions differently, but it's still debt being used in this sense. Work functions differently. We understand the value of work differently in different historical time periods, but work is still used to control populations, and the same with family. So, Despite historical differences, I think there are a lot of continuities that we see between the ways in which human populations, um, and we could add non-human populations, are controlled through various mechanisms. These mechanisms don't vary that much over time, at least in the way I read them. We add new ones all the time, but these new ones play on existing ones. Um, and so that's where I see the ability to connect the bridge between the past and the present. And for me, I don't see a point in reading this material if it's not going to provide a bridge between the past and the present. I'm not interested in this, this material for, for, you know, purely academic or scholarly reasons and trying to find out, you know, what exactly was going on in this historical period. Those are very important questions and I don't want to dismiss them, but I also think these are living texts as are all other texts that are important. And so I want to be able to make use of them in the present. And that's what I'm trying to do in the book. Uh, Well, you do it really well in the book. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Well, uh, kind of turning towards the the last chapter a little bit more, uh, towards the end of your book, you uh, make a really interesting observation and argument about Jesus as not an ascetic. I mean, I think that's pretty cool. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, like Jesus sometimes gets framed as this like, uh, you know, wandering holy man who doesn't want anyone to own things or, or you know, that you should, um, uh, you, you too should like always leave all your things behind, but you parse out a little bit of a different understanding of Jesus uh, as not an aesthetic as something a little bit different. Um, so do you want to talk a little bit about what you've, uh, what you've argued uh, with regards to asceticism and um, how you think that there's actually a problem with accumulation rather than asceticism? Yeah. I just don't think Jesus is an ascetic. If you read Uh, a lot of his parables and you read what he does there are all these parables really of abundance like the the feeding of the five thousand you know he starts with nothing and then multiplies and then there's stuff left over and it's not that people are just eating what they need people are eating what they want and what they desire because there's more left over there's plenty to go around um There were all these parables about, you know, the kingdom of God being like a banquet or a party. Jesus's first act um, in some of the gospels is to turn water into wine and turning water into wine after everyone's already drunk. And so these are really, you know, signs for me of excess and abundance. And 
where I position Jesus is that he's more concerned with accumulation rather than consumption. And part of my argument here, as I develop it in the book, is against certain strains in contemporary theology that offer as a remedy to capitalism reigning in our consumption. Now, overconsumption can, you know, obviously be a bad thing, and it's contributed to where we are currently in terms of the environmental state of our planet. Uh, I think that's self-evident. However, the way that discourses on consumption and theology are often used are sort of in this moralizing way that we should rein it in and that we shouldn't consume too much because we need to be more stoic and direct our desires to God rather than to the things of this world. And I think that is an ineffective strategy in a lot of ways, but also I think it's out of line with what Jesus does because Jesus consumes a lot. I mean, he's called a drunkard, and you're not accused of being a drunkard unless you do something that makes you look like that, and that means overconsuming. Um, I'm not advocating for the overconsumption of alcohol, but I'm just, you know, speaking of that in general um, as a concept. And so, where I do think Jesus, you know, is critical is in terms of accumulation, because he tells us to be like the birds of the air and the lilies of the field who possess nothing and store up nothing, yet get everything they need. And, you know, he walks around with his disciples apparently taking nothing, um, but living off other people's generosity. And I think part of the reason that accumulation is important is because accumulation is one of the ways that we hedge our bets against each other, against the future, and against what Jesus calls God. Um, accumulation is a way to, again, insulate ourselves from others. Uh, it, I mean, to take an extreme example, every time we have apocalyptic sort of sounding events or storms, or even just in general fears about the world ending, what do people do? They go and hoard up stuff. Uh, so that they can be protected, and they want to protect themselves against each other. I just find that, you know, a really horrible way to interact with other human beings, that if the apocalypse comes, I'm going to take all I can and not help other people. Um, I just find that horrible, and I think that's why Jesus is against accumulation because it allows us to hedge our bets on things but also it allows us to stick where we are in our current economic system um, it doesn't force us to think otherwise it doesn't force us to think in terms of excess rather than in terms of this myth of scarcity that uh, is foundational to contemporary capitalism and is also foundational to our understanding of accumulation if things are scarce, then life is a competition for those scarce resources, and I come out better on the end if I accumulate more than you do.
You're really uh, speaking our language, I think, on the Magnificast, especially in terms of how Christians sort of fixate on these things like consumption, uh, almost like spiritualizing or personalizing their politics that in a way that stops them from looking at the root causes of, of problems uh, like production or accumulation. And one way that this really comes out in your book is also how you, you keep sort of interrogating those theological voices uh, like Hauerwas or, or some other people in that orbit, that kind of communitarian orbit. And you mobilize a number of resources against that kind of way of thinking, uh, but especially liberation theology and then borrowing as you do from other philosophical traditions. Um, I'm curious to hear a little bit more about what you make of uh, liberation theology, what you get from it. Um, you use a lot of, for example, like Jose Miranda, who we've talked about on the podcast before. Um, and I think it would just be interesting to hear a little bit more about how you're mobilizing those theological materials uh, against these other kind of theological voices. Yeah, I've been very influenced by liberation theology. I started reading liberation theology when I was an undergraduate and read it throughout my um, master's and actually pitched my PhD project as a, a dialogue between continental philosophy and liberation theology. That didn't materialize. I went on to do other things, but maybe this is a book that sort of comes to term comes to terms with that relationship in my head in a lot of ways. I think one of the great tragedies of contemporary Christianity is the failure to take liberation theology seriously. And by that, I mean, it doesn't actually shape the way we go about anything in um, industrialized, technologized nations. We give lip service to it, but we haven't taken seriously any of the valid critiques that liberation theologies have offered um, from the other side of history, the side of history that's been colonized and remains colonized in numerous ways. And so I think liberation theology is very important. And I also wish that um, people in contemporary philosophical theology and critical theory would take liberation theology um, importantly as well. Um, because although they want to talk about liberation, they don't read people that you know are actually on the ground doing that in a lot of ways. So liberation theology has been really essential to me for understanding um, my own theological reflections, but also understanding my um, political motivations as well. Well, um, speaking of some folks who have not taken liberation theology seriously, um, elsewhere in uh, elsewhere, you've written about the religious left in the U.S. Um, and <laughs> sorry, uh, they uh, you know the religious left uh, is sort of like a, a trope in contemporary political writing, but it has very little to do with you know what we conceive of as the left uh, in right. the larger scope of politics. Um, but how how does this book that you've written uh, intervene in that conversation, or what does the religious left as like a journalism mean, or more specifically the Christian left miss about what Jesus is up to? Uh, what would a Christian left really look like um, in in light of what you've written here? Yeah, I think uh, I have a lot of problems with the term Christian left, uh, the way it's used in contemporary journalism and online in various places. Um, 
to me, the way Christian left is being used just means liberal Christianity, which, of course, liberal Christianity exists. It's always existed. Um, but I don't think that uh, what we call the Christian left in journalism is anything new. There's been talk since the 80s about a rising Christian left in the United States. And what they mean by that term as something in opposition to the Christian right, as this highly mobilized, almost singularly focused entity uh, has failed to materialize. I don't think it's going to materialize, and I don't want it to materialize. Um, because I think we should learn our lesson from what happens when we, um, you know, provide some sort of alternative in that sense, um, religiously based like that. I don't want it, want something to replace the religious right. I want it, I want it gone. Um, that doesn't mean there's not a place for, you know, left thinking and action and religion, I think it's already there. And I think it's already on the ground and doing things, but the coalitions are different than you're going to see in discussions of um, the re religious left or Christian left in the media. I mean, I'm not sure what the term actually means when you can lump together Elizabeth Warren, Pete Buttigieg, and Biden all in terms of the religious left. I'm not even sure what value that term has. Um, and I mean, the way I use left or religious left is, you know, in a more socialist or Marxist sense of the term left, um, people fighting against capitalism, people fighting intersectionally for justice across various domains. And um, that's what I mean by left, and I do think there are religious people involved in that. Um, but I think, at least the way I understand things, those people would resist an overarching label such as Christian left as well because they're suspicious of hierarchies and unifying forces. And what the religious left does is attempt to unify and hierarchize. So that's where I am on that. That's good. That's great. <laughs> uh, for people who don't know, Hollis has published a number of kind of short op-ed pieces around the internet. Um, maybe we'll try to remember to put those in our show notes, uh, but good sort of commentaries on that journalism conversation. Um, maybe to just sort of start rounding out the conversation and get back to Jesus a little bit, um, you know, just really getting back to the the true <laughs> meaning of Christianity here, um, giving our hearts <laughs> over to uh, to that savior. Uh, you argue that Jesus isn't a revolutionary in this political sense, like we've been saying, but he does subvert all these uh, social institutions. Uh, and that might lead to something like a, a revolutionary opening or, or something like that. Uh, maybe that's putting it too strongly, but just kind of a gloss here. Um, and if that is the case, or at least kind of thinking through his political uh, import, what sort of principles or ideas or sensibilities do you think that activists and organizers could take from Jesus? How could Jesus be a uh, a resource in the struggle rather than just being a you know a, a sort of pacifying moralistic figure or something like that? Yeah, well, I think he's one of these figures that. He doesn't offer a specific program for us, but he does, you know, encourage us or incite us to think otherwise. 
he challenges the way that we have organized things and that's where his intervention is. And so in that sense, I think he may, remains a relevant source, but it's up to us to figure out what to do with that. And I am encouraged that people are doing things that I see evident in the way Jesus thinks. There's been way more talk about debt forgiveness in the past couple of years than I've seen in my entire lifetime. And so that's encouraging to me, though I would like to see that go further and talk about debt resistance as well. And I think that's something that I would like to explore for further and that I talk about just a little bit in my book. And so, you know, uh, I think we need to be careful not to uh, pigeon Jesus into a specific political program, not because I think Jesus is above political programs in some, you know, spiritual sense as we're all together and we're all one in this, um, but in the sense of that he just doesn't provide one, you know, um, and but he does, you know, point at things we can consider. And so, you know, to use a cliche, he wants us to think outside the box a little bit. Um, and I think that's what he offers. And I try to do that and try to develop that in various ways, but it's up to us on what to do with that and what it's gonna look like on the ground. And hopefully um, when we establish things, they remain open and we constantly rethink where those things are going because ultimately what Jesus shoots for is being against mammon and being for justice and that includes economic justice and um, so I would like to think that he's an important resource in that sense as important as any other resource and that's one of the things I wanted to do in my book we always go back to Marx and read when we want to talk about economic justice and class struggle. Well, why can't we go back to Jesus as a source in that respect too? I think it's a really helpful intervention, honestly, into the whole, um, I don't know, just the whole realm of activism and uh, organizing. It gives us a lot to think about as, you know, Jesus as a, a, a thinker of social ontology. Um, Hopefully, uh, the all of the all of the radical Christians that work at like uh, uh, credit card companies are listening right now, and they can make a friend through dishonest <laughs> means if uh, if they'd like to. Right, right here. <laughs> so, just thinking a little bit more too, Hollis, about what you're doing in this book, uh, positioning a a study of Jesus in a political conversation just makes me think of other sort of semi canonical books for progressive Christians about Jesus. Probably the most significant that comes to my mind is John Howard Yoder's The Politics of Jesus, uh, you know, presenting this sort of pacifist view of Jesus. And then Jesus does actually give you a certain program, a political program, uh, and you you pattern your life kind of in a one-to-one -one <laughs> correlation, um, however however you can. Uh, and I guess I'd like to hear a little bit more, maybe as we close here, you know, what? how do you feel when you think about uh, Jesus politically? How do you feel Christians might be able to uh, engage Jesus and think through Jesus uh, in a, a political sense when it's when Jesus is also kind of up for grabs among all these other uh, conversations? How is your book intervening in that story about who Jesus is and who Jesus might be for Christian people today? Well, I think it says that 
I mean, I think it's right that Jesus can be a lot of things, but I hope what the book does is just encourage people to go back and read Jesus. And that's how I started with this book in a lot of ways is just going back and reading Jesus with some other things in mind that I hadn't had in mind um, years prior and also engaging in different circumstances. I mean, I think that because Jesus is a religious figure and people pattern their lives after what they think he says and does or what other people say he says and does, then I think we often don't go back and actually read what he says. And I think we do that with the entire um, Bible as well. And so I hope that people will just go back and read and struggle with these texts as I tried to do and read them with contemporary concerns in mind, because I think you can find some resources there. And I mean, it may look a little different from my Jesus, but I hope that's a dialogue partner. You know, at the end of the day, um, I like to think that, well, at least probably, you know, the people that are listening to this and probably my audience for the book, we're all generally on the same page about where we need to go as peoples and as nations and as a world. And so we might get there through different ways, um, but I think we can struggle together through that. And that means struggling with what Jesus says. And I hope my book encourages people to do that, present Jesus in a new light um, for people and then see where we can go from there. Cool. I think that's great. It's a really fun book. It's called Jesus and the Politics of Mammon. You can get it on Cascade Books and everyone out there should go and buy it, accumulate it unesthetically. <laughs> yeah, consume it. Uh, <laughs> any um, any final parting notes here, Hollis, for uh, Christians uh, trying to just get back to Jesus? Yeah, um, I don't know. Just uh, read Jesus, you know, <laughs> read Jesus, read a lot. I mean, that's what I do, but uh, read my book, too, if you want to. But, um, <laughs> you know, because consumption's not bad, so um, consume. But, um, no, I appreciate the opportunity that, that you've given um, for me to uh, talk about this. And, um, you know, I, I hope that other people have enjoyed this conversation as well. Thanks for listening to The Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you should buy Hollis's book. Uh, you can get it from Cascade. Uh, you can also support our podcast on Patreon yourself at patreon.com slash The Magnificast. You can find us on Twitter at The Magnificast. You can email us at themagnificast at gmail.com. You can... Find us on Facebook. We have a group on there called The Magnificast Basement. Uh, every once in a while, we post stuff there, and so do some other folks. So if you want to connect with people, you can do that there. Uh, our music is by Amoria Armstrong, and our outro is by The Illogical Spoon. See you next week. in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord.
Jackson, keep your hoods up, you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late. Jackson, you keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon. So come on now.